Shall we pray together? Father, we're thankful for this glorious day, for the bountiful provision that we receive from your hand. And even though, as we'll be studying in this lesson today, we live in a world that has been crippled by the corruption that has come through, the, uh, through sin and evil, and yet, Lord, we can experience the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord. We can experience much of the beauty which has been retained because of your presence. Oh God, I pray that we will sense your presence individually and corporately this morning, that you will bless our time of study together, that you will bless the service which is going on at this same hour in the next building. And we ask in every way you'll touch our hearts according to our need and your will this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 3, reading verses 17 to 19. We've been looking at God's dealing with the serpent and Eve and Adam after what's called the fall. And verses 17 to 19, God turns specifically to Adam. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Really a, a great come down for a glorious being created in the image of God, is it not? In the passage that we studied last week, we saw that God, first of all, dealt with a serpent, and then he dealt with Eve, and now God is turning to Adam to pronounce upon him the result of his sin. It's kind of interesting as you note that Eve was not subjected to the curse of the serpent, but Eve will be also under the curse which is placed upon Adam. We have first of all, as the divine judge, God clearly stating what the law was, and then exactly how Adam had violated it. It almost sounds like a courtroom presentation as you read this passage of Scripture. It's interesting that Adam's excuse that the woman had given him the fruit held no water with God. In fact, God incorporated it into the charge against him. Notice as we read there, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the fruit of the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat. You notice you keep showing up in that passage. And so God just brings his accusation right in, his, his, his excuse that Eve had responsibility here. God just incorporates that right in as part of the accusation against Adam. It's kind of interesting, and some of the commentators uh, on this particular passage point out that it was in the eating of the fruit that mankind sinned. And as you read through this passage, you discover it would be in eating that specific punishment would be spelled out. 
Eating is a pretty critical part of our lives, isn't it? Uh, we all have to do it. And so, obviously, it was a very important point. But I think it's important for us also to realize that at the same time, we need to note the overall impact of sin here. It was in, I believe, the removal of God's impenetrable hedge which he had put around his creation. When God created this universe, he made it perfect. Uh, there was not a, a twinge of evil or, or uh, inaccuracy in it at any place. Now for corruption to come, for decay to come, God is going to have to open that hedge to lower the walls of protection about his creation. And Satan would thus be allowed to become the prince of this world. Prince with a little p, I think we should say. And as a result, the vileness of his rule would be manifested not only in the spiritual realm, but also in the physical realm. It's, I, I think it's noteworthy for us to take into account the fact that all the beauty we see in the world today is residual beauty. It's just what God has preserved from the original beauty. And, and as we stare out across uh, the, the forest the hillsides at the rising majesty of a snow-capped peak, and, and we see the beautiful clouds in the sky, and and the wonder of the sun glistening off that snow, and just to realize that's residual beauty. It's far diminished from what God originally created it all to be. When we think about that, we must realize that what is heaven going to really be like? God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. A perfect man, by the name of Adam, had been created from a perfect, bountiful soil. However, that was going to change drastically. The ground was cursed, it says specifically here, on account of Adam. Because of his sin, the ground would be cursed, and as we'll see, of course, really the whole universe. Now, the word cursed here comes from the Hebrew verb arar, and it's, it's pointed out that it is an antonym to the Hebrew barak, which means to bless. So this, ver this verb here is the exact opposite of the verb to bless, as you see it here in this particular passage. And, and the meaning includes the idea of binding, of putting up obstacles. And so I think within the context of this passage, we see that it probably meant that the soil's fertility was going to be bound relative to man. The whole earth, if we remember, was created for the purpose of man. God created the world to be the place where he was going to place mankind. And you remember back in the first chapter, the 28th verse, it said, God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and what? Subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And I really believe that that domain, that rule, was different from what we see in any way today. The rule was much more specific and exact that the creatures of the world would acknowledge the rule of man. Most creatures of the world today have nothing but fear of man. And I don't think that was what was intended. So what we have here is the ruin of the king of the domain, and as a result of the ruin of the king, you have the ruin of the domain. And of course you could see many parallels in history where the, the ruler of a kingdom became demented, or like Adolf Hitler as he tried to rule Germany, he brought about the destruction of his domain. That, that is in a, a small little uh, item of history. Here we see it for the totality. As the king is destroyed or pulled down, so his kingdom will suffer rapid decline. The impact of the curse was going to be felt everywhere. Not just that the soil was going to produce less, but the whole world and the whole universe would be impacted by this curse. Let me read you a few words from the 16th century reformer John Calvin. He says, although, as David says, the earth is still full of the mercy of God, yet at the same time appear manifest signs of his dreadful alienation from us, by which, if we are unmoved, we betray our blindness and our insensibility. If we cannot see in this, this, this world the corruption and realize from that that we have been alienated from the Creator, we are blind. We are insensitive in spiritual areas. Now, specifically, the curse upon the ground would cause that the ground would not give forth abundantly and effortlessly as it would before. Remember, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden simply to trim it and to keep it in order. They weren't to try to put something in the ground and, and hope the thing would grow and hope the frost wouldn't kill it. There weren't any frosts in the garden in those days before the fall. And I don't know about you, maybe you're all green thumbs, but I find sometimes things I plant don't grow very well. <laughs> Year before last, I put three citrus trees in our yard. And then we had December before last December. I have no more citrus trees in my yard. They all turned to brown sticks. <laughs> the soil was just, I mean, it was just as if the soil was saying, plant something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, they talk about uh, corn in Iowa. You can almost watch the stuff grow. And, and you can imagine, that's in a cursed earth. What it must have been like before. Man was going to win food from the ground only by great effort. Literally by the sweat of his brow, or as in some cultures, the sweat of his frow.
The word translated toil in, in this passage here, the third chapter of Genesis, in the 17th verse there where it says, in toil, is basically the same word that you find back up in verse 16 in the middle of that verse where it says, your pain, in pain, you shall bring forth children. It's the same word, basically. Pain and toil. Pain for Eve as she gave birth, toil, pain, for Adam and his successors as they would work the earth. So the word includes not just sweat, you know, it's hard digging the ground and all this, and so you sweat as a result. The word includes emotional sorrow and mental anguish. And you understand that, especially if any of you have been farmers, but we know about the history of farming even in this country. There were those who went out west and they had on their wagons, Nebraska or bust. A little later, the wagon came back, busted, you know. Because at the time, many were moving out onto the Great Plains. It happened to be a decade of, of wetter winters. And then the normal winters set in after that, and the crops failed all over the Great Plains, and farmers went bankrupt. Mental anguish. Everything that you have was put into this crop, and it's gone. Every facet of human nature was going to be impacted by this curse. In the physical realm, exactly how was this curse manifested? Well, I think literally, every step in agricultural production was cursed and thus was going to be hindered in the attempt for man, uh, by mankind to produce food. How? Well, first of all, by the development of noxious weeds. And it says specifically there in uh, verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. I don't believe there were any thorns and thistles in the Garden of Eden. Noxious weeds. But also, in addition to that, came harmful insects and diseases which would also destroy the crops. If you've read the statistics around the world today, you discover that in most of the non-Western nations, one half of the entire crop grown is lost to these three things, weeds, diseases, and insects, and also rodents. Half. Now, in this country, it's not half. We throw away half. But for most of the world, it's these same causes which destroy so much of what could provide for the food. There would be nobody hungry in the world today if it weren't for noxious weeds, diseases, insects, and rodents. If it weren't for those things, everybody in the world would have enough to eat because the food, that is if it were properly distributed, because there's plenty of food to go around. Although God's sustaining power was not going to be removed, God didn't just pull his hands back and say, all right, I'm going to let this thing go, because we're told in Colossians that it's by his hand, by his power, that the world is sustained. And if God were to withdraw his sustaining hand, it would all disappear in a puff of smoke, I believe. But what God did was open the door to the impact of Satan's hideous influence. 
and harmful mutations would occur. Mutations are real. Darwin argued that it was mutations occurring and you run them through a sieve of natural selection and out from the other end will come a higher form of life. Yes, there are mutations. This is obvious. It's been proven. You can see it happening. But he requires beneficial mutations, which are almost totally non-existent. In fact, even evolutionists will often argue that out of a thousand or ten thousand mutations, you might have one beneficial mutation. And others argue, we've yet to see one. There were mutations, all right. But these mutations of plant and animal and bacterial forms would produce deleterious genetic changes. Changes for the worse, not for the better. Today, what do we have? We have a disease, and so we fight it with a, with a let's say it's a bacterial disease, we fight it with an antibiotic. So what happens? Eventually, the bacteria mutates. And what happens? It's no longer subject to that antibiotic, so we have to develop another antibiotic. These mutations are not for our good as they occur, and they never have been. So what we have is devolution, as we've talked about before. I believe in evolution, if you put a D in front of it. You have devolution, and we have lots of proof of devolution, of things winding down from a superior form to a lower form, a lesser form, a more harmful form. And so what you have is, is genetic changes which produce poisons and thorns and thistles and claws and fangs. Things which didn't exist in the garden, I don't believe. Now, how did this devolution take place? What caused it to happen? Well, technically, I think that uh, it may have occurred by direct demonic intervention. Now, a lot of scientists will not want to even consider this, but I don't think we can reject the possibility that demons can manipulate genetic material. They are extremely intelligent and powerful beings. Satan was the highest order of all the God's created beings before he fell, the anointed cherub that covers. That's not creating, that's manipulating. And we know very well how he's able to manipulate. Does that mean he couldn't manipulate genetic material? Well, I don't know, but it's a possibility that there was a direct genetic manipulation which produced the harmful mutations that resulted in the vile things, you know, the horror stories, as we might think of them. But, of course, it could have been the result of indirect genetic changes that came because God now allowed cosmic radiation to come in and impact the gene of the individual or radioactivity from the earth or chemical attack of one sort or another that caused the, the genes to be modified. Whatever the case, the product was monsters. You know, we children are sometimes in some homes, I hope none of ours, told stories about monsters. And, and it's easy for kids to think about monsters and to be frightened by monsters. But there really are monsters. 
And there really have been monsters. And I think monsters all the way from Tyrannosaurus Rex, which has been dug out of the ground, there was a Tyrannosaurus Rex, great, gigantic, terrible lizard, I think certainly was a, the result of harmful genetic mutation, all the way down to the, to the little bitty microbes, many of which are harmful, and viruses, which were the product, I believe, of genetic mutation. Chaos began to emerge. And I think this chaos can be seen all the way from the colossal collision of galaxies out there to the chaos which takes place inside of our bodies when a microbe is attacked by a bacteriophage and gobbled up. Macroscopic chaos microscopic chaos, and we're caught in the middle. You've, you've heard those that say that the human being is the average size thing in the universe. <laughs> There's many things smaller than, than we are as there are things larger than we are. So we're average. <laughs> well, <clears throat> it doesn't matter which realm you look in. There's, there's violence and chaos. And we, we look out across the beautifully groomed lawns and the beautiful flower beds, and if you get your little Microscope out and look down there, and you see violence everywhere. Bug eating bug, you know, and, and viruses and, 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 and fungi, fungi and whatever else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tell us about it there. <laughs> and you try, to, you try to keep it green and, and nice, and everything's fighting against you. Originally created good and perfect by the one in whom perfection and goodness are attributes. The universe was open to subjection by the evil one in whom there is not a trace of goodness or perfection. Satan has to be viewed as the exact opposite of God, not in terms of power in any way, but everything that God is, he is not. And God is perfect and good and righteous and holy. And the evil one is not. And his desire is to bring it all down to his level. The horrors of decay and destruction set in. Let me just read to you a brief passage from, or just part of a verse from Romans 8, where it says, For the creation was subjected to what? Futility not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. God allowed it. Now, God had a purpose. You go on reading there and see that he had a purpose of redemption in us all. But God subjected this universe to fertility by allowing the enemy to have access. What's interesting is God generally turns things to his purpose, though. And disease and death have a purpose. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later as far as individuals are, are concerned. But God would use disease and death to prevent this world from being overrun by wicked men and violent creatures. Do we see 
Well, I, I realize they're still out there searching and, and they think maybe, uh, uh, what is her name in, in the, oh, the Loch Ness Monster, what do they, what do they call her? Nessie? All right, Nessie, whatever her name is. Uh, down in there, some think that she's kind of a leftover from, from dinosaurs, and there are those who say, you know, there still may be dinosaurs out there someplace because we haven't explored every corner of the world yet. Uh, but you have to say they don't rule the world today, do they? And there are enough remnants of dinosaurs for us to know that there was a time when they were pretty numerous on planet Earth. And yet God did not allow this world to be overrun and destroyed by either violent men or violent creatures. God himself, of course, as we'll see, will destroy it and eliminate much of that in order to carry on his plan. Now, there's a value in this curse. The curse upon the whole of creation helped mankind. You might say, whoa, really? It helped mankind, huh? Yeah, it did. First of all, I believe that the curse helped mankind to realize fairly quickly the seriousness of sin. Now, not everybody recognizes the seriousness of sin. Obviously, most of the unregenerate world, many are concerned about sin. They don't know what to do about it. What's really, uh, I think, serious is when Christians don't take sin seriously. When Christians toy with it, when Christians think, well, you know, God is, is sort of the grandfather up there and he understands, you know, we're but dust and so we don't take it seriously. But really, the seriousness of sin is emphasized by the curse. Let me read a verse from James 1, verse 15. Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin is serious. And God wanted mankind to always know that sin was serious. The point I made last week, and the point which, especially as you study the Old Testament, it keeps coming through time and time and time again. God will not condone sin by blessing us in spite of our sin. In, the idea, in, this, in this area of specific blessings. Now, again, the general blessings are there. The sun came up this morning. You know, it's beautiful. It has rained a little. Thank the Lord. Even the pagans experienced the rain, right? And many of them are up on the mountain today enjoying the snow. God bless them. But we must realize that God demands obedience. And if we obey, he blesses. And we read those passages from Deuteronomy which spell it out so clearly. And I don't think God has said, all right, Deuteronomy doesn't count anymore because you're in the New Testament. It's a different world. You can go ahead and sin. I'll bless you anyway. No, I don't think so. I think it still remains the same. I think God is up there with a big whip ready to knock us around all the time. But we must recognize the fact that if we're walking in sin, we're not acknowledging our sin, we're not confessing our sin, God is prevented from blessing us. Not that he gets excited and wants to whack us. He wants us to be obedient, and it pains him to see us live in sin. And he wants us, and the Spirit of God is there to convict us and cause us to change. 
And so the, the, the difficulty of life helps us. How many people have come to know Christ because of the curse on this planet and upon all mankind? So many people come to Christ because of, uh, of difficulties in their lives. They have come to the, quote, end of their rope. And finally, they turn to God. Sort of the foxhole experience for many. Then secondly, I believe that the curse upon the whole of creation has helped mankind to recognize his helplessness. We cannot save ourselves. And we cannot save this creation. We can join the Green Party if we want, or, or become environmentalists if we want. We're not going to save this creation. It's been cursed. It's been cursed by one far stronger than any party or anybody who wants to save an owl or a fish or whatever. Not that we shouldn't be concerned about those things, but as you probably have heard, what is it? Every year, X number of species disappears off the face of planet Earth, a thousand or whatever it is. I don't remember what the statistic is. So we are concerned about one here and one there. Well, probably well and good. But it's sort of like trying to put out a fire with a teacup. Man cannot save himself, nor can he save creation from decay, death, and ultimate destruction. Let, let me read from Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. Romans 8, 7 and 8. Because the mind set on the flesh is by definition hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, nor for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh can not please God. I don't care if so-and-so gives a million dollars to charity or, or pours out all of his money for, you know, sending medicine to, to, to dying Ethiopians. What we do in the flesh cannot please God. God is not pleased by that. He is only pleased by that which is carried out in his strength and by his anointing and by his power. Because all the rest of it is a band-aid over a gaping wound and, and makes no difference whatsoever. It simply salves one's conscience so that one thinks one is okay and doesn't see the horrible sin in that person's own life. So the helplessness that we must experience is emphasized by this curse. I cannot overcome the problems in my life by my own strength. Now, in addition to, to that, the fact that this curse really meant that man had to work constantly and strive valiantly to try to, to wrest a meager living out of the soil. If you look down through the pages of history, you will discover that great civilizations only emerge occasionally. And generally, they only emerge where there is a place where agricultural surplus was allowed to develop. You look at the Indus River Basin, and you look at the uh, Yellow River Basin. 
You, you look at the Tigris Euphrates, you look at the Nile. Where did civilization begin? In these places where the soil happened to be more fertile and water was there and there was adequate manpower to raise crops that would more than feed the actual families of the farmers. So a little was left over to feed somebody who could make shoes or, or, or build pyramids. But those have been few places and far between, historically. And so most of mankind has just grubbed the ground. I mean, the Indians who lived here in California before we came were grubbers. They mostly lived by what they could hunt and gather from their surroundings. The fish they could get out of the river, the acorns they could pick off the trees or find on the ground, um, the animals that they could catch, the kind of stuff they ate makes you sick when you think about it. Collections of fly larvas and, you know, worm... Well, all kinds of things. <laughs> this, this is not um, made in the image of God concept anyway. They ran around stark naked, mostly, and just lived off the land. Obviously, they struggled to survive, and they were, they were far, relatively few and far between. The entire native population of California was probably at the most 150,000 when the Spanish first arrived, which for an Indian population was actually fairly heavy for North America, but you think about 150,000 people scattered all over California where there's 30 million of us now. I mean, you could go for hours and, and, and days without seeing a neighbor. Some might say, whew, hallelujah, let's go back and do that, huh? But uh, this just all keeps emphasizing this curse. Work, work, work. Valiantly strive to keep body and soul together by trying to get something to eat. Now, we always think of the, well, we often think of the animal as something that lives by its mouth. It's always chewing and searching for something to eat. Well, mankind isn't far behind in many places in the world. This has had some important results, which are also listed under number four, about midway down your outline there. First of all, it's kept most men too busy to think of other novel ways to rebel against their Creator. You look at the evolution of human society, and, and by the way, there are proper ways to use the word evolution, and, and that is a proper way. You'll discover that when have pagan religions developed? Most pagan religions have developed because a priesthood has somehow come into existence. How did that priesthood come into existence? By parasitization of the superstitious peasants. They managed to con the peasants into giving some of their produce to provide a class of people who don't have to work to get their livelihood from the soil and so they can spend their time thinking of ways to worship the Creator I mean, the creature rather than the creator. And, and you study the, the lives of the ancient Egyptians and the ancient uh, people of Mesopotamia and, and their gods and their goddesses 
are simply modified human or animals, you know, glorified humans and glorified animals. No real conception of the Creator. They fit into the first chapter of Romans very well. Now, most men and women are out there trying to survive from today to tomorrow. They have certain basic superstitions, but they don't have all this refined idea of how to make sacrifices and build temples and worship this god or this goddess. And the refined theology of paganism, they don't have time to think that up. They're just kind of frightened by the things around them, and, and they figure there's spirits around there, but they don't really go much beyond animism until you have this crew of people who, who have the time to evolve this stuff, obviously under clear satanic direction. So this drudgery was actually good, at least in that sense. Now there's another important result, more valuable, I think, even than the first, in that it became obvious to some that life without God is vain and purposeless. And of course, the best example of that is, as you well know, to read from Ecclesiastes, where the preacher there, we assume was Solomon, who had gone through a rather rugged life and had many problems, all of his own making, well, most of his own making anyway. Let's, let's just read a little bit of the, uh, of the sense of purposelessness and vanity. The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all. Not some. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work? I mean, after all, you grow the crop just so you can stay alive so that tomorrow you can pick some more. Oh, good. <laughs> How thrilling. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever, obviously relatively speaking. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the no uh, south, turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. On its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea. Well, not quite all, but as far as anybody could tell. Yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. <laughs> they just keep doing it. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. That which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Isn't that a real upbeat message? <laughs> yeah. Just thrills you to your toes, does it not, with the joy of life. But it's the kind of feeling we have on Monday morning many times, right? <laughs> oh, brother. Back to work again. Look at uh, 22nd verse of the second chapter. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. And that's exactly the result of the curse. Now that ultimately produces good. Because thirdly, some are caused to search for the answer to this drudgery and to call out to 
God for deliverance. And they are willing even to repent of their sin, to acknowledge their sin, repent of their sin, knowing then that God has promised that he will help us in this life as well as grant to us paradise regained. Now listen to the different tone of Psalm 34. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, it's acknowledged, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his serpent, servants, <laughs> and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Acknowledgement, right? There is a curse. This world is troubled, but there is hope. There is a redeemer. There is one who will actually come down from his throne and touch our lives and give us the joy and the peace and the hope in the midst of trial and toil and sorrow and turmoil. That's the message of hope. And that's what God wanted them to see. And that's why he allowed this curse to be universe-wide, that we all might be impacted by the futility and hopelessness of it all. And sometimes that's what we have to pray. You know, that errant child, that errant parent, <laughs> that uh, whoever ha has not turned to the Lord, sometimes we have to pray they will what come to the end of their rope, that they will recognize the futility and hopelessness of the life that they're living, that there is no joy and peace apart from God, that life really is humdrum, boring, full of drudgery. Well, going on to the next point there. In addition to the sweat and the tears that mankind would have to experience in order to win living from the earth, the curse upon mankind included other things even more horrible. Sorrow, for example. Now, sorrow is a very common emotion. All mankind experience, experiences sorrow, and sometimes that sorrow is the result of what seem to be unexplainable tragedies. How is it that that person could have hit that icy patch on the freeway? You know, how, how is it that that electrical circuit should, should short-circuit and burn that house down. Seems unexplainable, beyond man's control. But at the same time, there is that ubiquitous reality of man's inhumanity to man. My wife and I have noted this several times. It seems so strange that in our society, where we have so much, that people should be so awful to each other. 
So much of the world people are so busy just trying to survive, they don't have time to think of ways to, to humiliate and torture each other. But in our society, we got too much time to do that. That you have your Mike Tysons, and you have your, you know, I, I could name a long list that you've probably been reading about in the paper as, as I have. I mean, what for? Why is it? Well, we know why. But it, it makes no sense. And we call these people homo sapiens, thinking man. Huh, right, thinking about what? Certainly not thinking about God. Well, Jeremiah kind of gives it to us pretty <laughs> straightforward in 20th chapter, verse 18. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Well, isn't that, you know, a, a real optimistic outlook on life? <laughs> Why was I ever born? Sorrow can tear us down. But Scripture teaches that there is a purpose for sorrow. There is a godly purpose for sorrow. And, and this is just one passage. There are others. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. God brings sorrow into our lives many times to bring us to himself because he is the only comforter who can really comfort the depths of our hearts. And yet the world knows a sorrow for which there is no comfort if they turn not to God. So sorrow will bring many to Christ. And so this aspect in many ways was beneficial. And what our hope is, as men and women of God, is based in the scripture which teaches us that sorrow is not a forever thing. And, and we know it so well, but let me just read the passage nevertheless in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall, what? Wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And that is our great hope. In this life where we experience sorrow, some of you may have already experienced sorrow this morning before you ever came here. Some of us may sit here in a, in a measure of sorrow because of someone that particularly maybe a loved one who has never really turned to the Lord and has so messed up their life. I think every one of us has someone like that. And, and that... You know, we may not always be thinking about it, but when we do, there, there is a twinge of sorrow there that comes. And then also the curse upon mankind included physical pain and suffering. Huh, do we ever know that? Now, obviously, most of us haven't got a lot to complain about compared to, 
you know, the old story about the person who complained he had no shoes until he saw someone who had no feet. Uh, illness became a part of the common lot of mankind. I would go so far as to say that probably there's nobody walking on this planet today who's been here very long who hasn't faced some illness of some sort. Physical and mental illnesses are universal. And they are the principal cause of pain and death in terms of at least physical pain. Now, I think that harmful bacteria and viruses were allowed by God to, to develop. I don't think there was a single harmful bacteria or virus in the universe before the fall. Everything was beneficial. Everything was good. God couldn't say, and it was good, and yet there's yellow fever and, you know, and smallpox and all this stuff. No, that wouldn't have been good. Didn't exist. But it developed as time passed. And I don't think it developed overnight. I think it came on slowly. All forms of life were included. I mean, all of us have probably had a pet that has gone through some serious illness and may even have died of it. And, you know, there's a measure of sorrow even, even for that animal that it has to suffer. It's all part of the curse. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Then finally, the curse upon mankind has brought death. We're aware of the fact that the word death simply means separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul of man from the body of man. And there are times when we actually long for that, if we're true believers, anyway. Adam and Eve were created to live on this planet forever. And there was a tree planted in the midst of the garden whose fruits they were to eat, and that would have provided for them eternal physical life. That same tree, as we have noted, will be in heaven. The scripture says the tree of life will be in eternal paradise. There was nothing harmful, nothing degenerative on the earth before Adam and Eve sinned. But when sin occurred, what happened? They were denied access to that tree. In fact, they were completely thrown out of the garden, as we'll be seeing. And the door was opened for the development of those agents which would bring about the ultimate destruction, decay, and death of the human body. Now, in Adam's case, this developed very slowly because a little later you'll discover Adam lived 930 years. That's not exactly like sinning and dropping dead. You can't even conceive of living 930 years. That would put us back in, in what, the year 10,000, I mean, the year 1061, five years before the Normans conquered England. Most of us wouldn't want to go back there well, maybe with a video camera we might, <laughs> and really video that stuff. But most of us wouldn't want to go back there and have to live through the dark ages and, and all that, and the bubonic plague, and all the terrors and horrors that have filled history. 
Many of those who were immediate successors to Adam lived nearly a millennium. In fact, Methuselah, remember, lived 969 years. Even Noah lived 950 years. But it's interesting that as you study that list of, of patriarchs, that longevity, longevity begins to drop off, and after the flood, precipitously. Lo, Noah may have lived 950 years, but Abraham only lived 175, and Moses 120. And by the time of David, which was about 1,000 B.C., he said, the time of man is threescore and ten, and if by reason of strength, fourscore years. Actually, for much of the world, the average is a lot less than that. And even today, there are many parts of the world where the average person doesn't live much past 40. It's kind of interesting, though. It was just recently, was it in U.S. News or the newspaper, they were talking about the fact that there are certain scientists who believe that because of the advancements in medical science and, and nutrition and everything that mankind's longevity is going to be upped and within the next century or two we're going to reach 100 or maybe even 120. Well, looking at the way people spend the last years of their lives today, who'd want to live to be 120? You know? Whatever is the case, you know, the fact of death is inevitable. Hebrews 9.27, you know the verse well. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. I mean, that is simply the closed case. It is appointed to every one of us to die physically, to undergo that separation of the soul from the physical body. Now, what happened in Adam's case was that when he sinned, physical death was just inaugurated. It was begun. And the actual death wouldn't occur until 930 years later. But spiritual death occurred when? Instantly. He was instantly separated from his maker. No, for, for spiritual life to develop... In an individual, we must be, as Jesus said, born again. And that new birth, that spiritual birth, can only take place if there is an act of redemption because God has so ordained it. Well, in Adam's case, what happened? He had to believe God, and then it, we, we, we feel, from what it says in Scripture, he had then to practice blood sacrifices. And we know that Cain and Abel you know, the encounter they had over this very point. And of course, that blood sacrifice was simply predictive, pointing to the blood sacrifice that would once, one day be made by the Lamb of God, who was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Without the act of redemption, which is really... I believe, the central theme of the New Testament. Adam would have experienced not only physical death in the long run, but he would have experienced what the Scripture calls the second death. Now, you and I will experience the first death unless the Lord returns before that happens for each of us as individuals. We all recognize that. 
But there's not a one of us in this room who needs to experience the second death. Not a one. Let me read this last verse here. Revel or passage. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Then over the last part of the chapter, verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from these things which were written, from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Those of us, and I trust everyone in this room, who are true believers in God and have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God, every one of us will have our bodies returned to the Adama. It's kind of interesting that Adam came from the Adama. From dust he came to dust he returned. Adama is dust. Every one of us will have our bodies returning to the dust, but our spirits may soar into God's heaven forever.